Hello and welcome to the reviews with the RPG Academy, the show where we take a look at recent RPG products and let you know what uh, we think. And as always, we base these discussions around our central philosophy at the RPG Academy, and that is if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Now, not every book is going to be for everyone, and we hope that you can take what we have to dis- what we have to say and to decide for yourself if this is something that you want to throw your money at. So. Today, we will be taking a look at the latest D&D 5th edition book from Wizards of the Coast, and that is Explorer's Guide to Wildmount. And I am privileged to be joined by two fantastic co-hosts today. And I'm joined first by Virginia Page, streamer, RPG designer, and assistant line manager for Modifius. How's it going, Virginia? It's going really good. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited. I'm, I've been a long-time Critical Role fan, so doing this is fun. <laughs> I'm so excited to talk to you about it. I'm glad to have you back on. And then also, we are joined for the first time by Nunu. Nunu, before I go any further, can you tell me your last name? Yes. Hi, everyone. My name is Nunu Teixeira. <laughs> there you go. So we talked about this before, and, and yeah, now... I can't, as everybody who listens to the show knows, I can't pronounce anything. And when Nunu told me his last name, I was like, I'm going to lay this on you. But Nunu is a streamer and also one of the multiple streams. And he's part, he's an admin for the London RPG community. And Nunu, you have an exciting project coming up. What is that? It's very true. Yes. Um, on the 11th of May, uh, we're going to start a wild mount campaign over on the Chromatic Chimera Twitch channel. Uh, it's going to be called Wild Mount Daring and Divine or Wild Mount D&D. And I'm very excited for it. <laughs> I know. Talk about like, this is the perfect time to have you on. So I'm sure we're going to get, um, because you're going to be doing a stream, I'm sure that you have studied this book to a T and know everything about it. That's exactly what a person would say normally. <laughs> but hey, not me. <laughs> <laughs> so I've introduced you also, Virginia, just for anybody who doesn't really know um, who you are, um, why don't you tell us a little about what, what you're doing right now in this RPG circle? Uh, yeah, so right now, obviously, like you said, I work for Modifius Entertainment. Uh, if you don't know who they are by company name, we make things like the Star Trek tabletop role-playing game and Conan, John Carter, which I had a hand in, and a whole bunch of other stuff like the upcoming Fallout RPG, the upcoming Homeworld RPG, both of which I've worked on. Um, so I, I spend a lot of my day looking at games, helping write games, mostly sending stuff off to writers and asking them to write things for me and what to change um but obviously I do a bunch of stuff outside of that I I also game I'm in a actually we've just hit the the one year mark on a campaign that I'm in a Game of Thrones RPG um over on the follow Black Cats Twitch channel where I play Mara Oakheart um so that's a whole ton of fun as well so I also my my job is my hobby and my hobby is my job and I love it um but I make some of my own stuff I also stream over on Twitch um, or I do video games because trying to get everyone's schedules together to do tabletop RPGs when all your friends are streamers who stream tabletop RPGs, it's impossible. Um, that's pretty much what, what I do. I just, my life is just playing games and making games. 
and is is a very busy life playing games oh, uh it's really busy like you i go from days where like i'd be in the office and i all i do all day is answer emails for people and send people stuff and then other days where it's just eight hours of reading drafts and play testing and it it you can never tell which one you're going to walk into sometimes. Um, and then obviously I come home from doing that. I finish work. I come home and I play games or I'm prepping for games that I'm running or I'm playing video games on Twitch. So it's literally my life. <laughs> That's okay though. So it's a good life. So, and then we're also joined by Nunu. Um, Nunu, I kind of told people a little bit about what you're doing, but what, what, what are you doing? Because when I say the, um, when I say admin for the London RPG community, that probably means nothing for our audience. So tell them what I mean by that. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So the London RPG community is a local gaming club here in London, United Kingdom. And um, yeah, being an admin for it's basically dealing with everything from organi- organizing the boring part of it but also organizing the fun part of it which is the games and recruiting more players more game masters and so yeah i used to also dm a lot with them uh recently i've hit the brakes a little bit because i started streaming more than playing with the London rpg community uh but yeah i'm still involved in all the the background boring processes because it's it's really an amazing initiative and we've grown a lot over the last few years i think we've been doing it for five years i think and the last two years were like immensely um great in terms of growth i think we have like over two thousand members on meetup at the moment and active members on our discord maybe 100 something 200 i think uh, so yeah it's just going really great that's that that's a very big community that is awesome that's awesome. So then as far as streaming goes, what all are you doing with over on the streaming side? So basically, I am part of uh, a group called No Initiative. Um, we are a narrative-driven, dedicated RP group. And we started one campaign ago, which is basically three months ago, with a Eberron campaign over on the Chromatic Chimera channel as well. And uh, basically the premise behind it is uh, we are this group, fixed group, if channels want to have us on to play a 10 episode season, something like that, just get in contact with us and we'll go over their channel and do our own thing. Uh, At the moment we are at the Chromatic Chimera, our second campaign that I mentioned, Wild Mount D&D, is also going to be on their channel. And this is as part of No Initiative. On my own personal level, I also um, am available for other streams and other channels. I also stream over on the Encara Roleplay Twitch channel and I'm part, was part, because it finished already, of the sister campaign to After the Fire that Virginia mentioned called The Crownlands, also a Song of Ice and Fire RPG campaign. And I don't know if I can say this, but sure, whatever. I think we're returning in July with a new season of The Crownlands. So there we go. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Wait All right, for the so... crossover. Yes. <laughs> Wait for the crossover. <laughs> That's that's awesome. So the one of the reasons that um, I reached out to my our dear friend Calum with the with the Rollist podcast, um, he does a lot of stuff with us, and I was like, Calum, I am not a, I don't know much about Critical Role, and there's this Critical Role Dungeons and Dragons book, and I want to do a review of it, and I need you to tell me who I need to talk to. So Calum started, you know, doing his networking thing, and said Virginia in. Nunu are the people that you want on the show. So here we are. And what I want to ask you all is, 
the first thing before we really dive into this book is I want to know what everyone's experience is with critical role because my experience is very, it's very minimal. I know obviously all about critical role in the sense of like the cultural phenomena it is and everything that it has done for the RPG industry and community and all the players it's brought in and all of the, the celebrities and the figures that are on the show. But as far as what actually is critical role, I am not that expert. That is Virginia and Nunu. And so Virginia, what is your then, what's your experience with Critical Role? So um, this is this is all going to sound kind of cliche, I guess, but Critical Role is how I got into doing RPGs. I always knew that Dungeons and Dragons existed because it's, you know, it's referenced in popular culture everywhere. You watch any show that's based in the 80s, you're going to have kids playing D&D somewhere in, you know, in that show. And I kept thinking about it more and more as I kind of realized that I was working a lot. I was in hospitality at the time. I didn't really have any other kind of hobbies happening that were very like active and doing stuff that wasn't just like reading or whatever. And so I can't remember where I came across it, but I started, you know, Google searching how to play D&D by yourself, not realizing that you can't really do that <laughs> um, in the way that I thought. And then found a roleplay club, the Roleplay Haven, which is a fantastic organization that also gives a lot of money to charity and helps set up role-playing clubs and I went along there but the only reason I kind of plucked up the courage to go to a club was because during my google searching of how to play D&D by myself I eventually found Critical Role as this group of as they say nerdy ass voice actors playing D&D and I started watching that and I didn't really get it at first in terms of like the mechanics but I really loved the story Mm -hmm. I loved watching them create this world I'm a huge fan of storytelling in general. I love reading books. Um, you know, back in my teen years, I was one of the many young people writing lots of fan fiction about all of my favorite fandoms at the time. So storytelling has always been something I really loved. And I watched this come alive on screen and learned how to play D&D before I'd ever even bought a player's handbook. And I watched that for months until eventually I found a role-playing club that was nearby and went Um, and it was kind of seeing how people gamed and the fact that you could become this character and just kind of step away from things as somebody who also has social anxiety, stepping into this other character and the idea of kind of getting to talk to people and meet people and have these experiences in game was really appealing. So I went Mm -hmm. along, I ended up playing Pathfinder for, um, about, I think it was three or six months around that time period and then got into my first D and D game. And I think that's where I really fell in love with it because I was, I was getting to understand from another viewpoint what this story was like. So I wasn't just watching it anymore. I was playing in it. And then I ended up running D&D exclusively for about two years after that, literally every single week. And all of my campaigns were set in Exandria when I started, okay. when I started running before the first book had even come out in my mind, that's where all of my games were. Even though I was running things like out of the abyss, they were all imported into Exandria because, you know, as some older gamers might've been, you know, brought up on D and D in the forgotten realms or in Eberron. For me, the D and D world that was in my head was Exandria. So it kind of formed the basis of all of the D and D that I used the way that you know, Mercer GMs is what I wanted to show my players because I saw them creating this wonderful story and 
I remember at the end of the first campaign watching watching the finale live and crying my eyes out over everything and I'm not someone that cries at film or television and I remember thinking afterwards oh that's over but I want to know where they are I want to know what these characters that I now love are doing and all of that I've tried to put into my GMing because if I can make players feel like they want to go back to those characters and see where they are in five years past that campaign time, it's influenced how I role play from getting me into it to the experience I want to leave players all because of what I saw in the early, early episodes that I caught. And I started from the beginning of season one and went all the way through. <laughs> That's incredible. And I think it's a, it's a testament of the uh, impact that critical role is you say it's cliche but i think it's a, it's an important story that so many people have where you started with critical role and now you're actually working yeah. in the rpg industry and that's absolutely wild that was all through as i said critical role was what got, gave me the confidence to go out and find a gaming club and it was through uh wonderful people i met there that somebody turned around to me and said have you ever thought of working in games and eight months later I was doing an apprenticeship at Modiphius and then I got then I got hired and I was like oh I I do this for a living now and I remember someone turning around to me and saying you realize that you are a professional game master the same way that Mercer goes on stream and obviously they get they, they you know they earn money for doing what they do you do that now you GM at conventions you do this and it's the weirdest weirdest feeling when you realize that you know you were an audience to a bunch of people who were putting out such amazing gameplay and now you yourself are becoming somebody who has an audience to some degree watching you do gameplay and there's there's a nice cyclical nature in that that I think I'm always grateful for when it comes to critical role it always seems everything I've heard everyone's kind of got into it and got something good out of it that they've then been able to pass on or push out further which is kind of cool that is super cool. Um, I think that's also important that what you said there is that you hear so many stories about people like just getting good out of it. You don't hear that many bad stories, which is a really cool testament of what what's going on over there. And so um, Nunu, and then so over on your side, then how did you what was your what has your experience been with Critical Role up to this point? Oh, man, it's been a wild ride. <laughs> <laughs> with critical role and, and tabletop rpgs in general it's been a very weird mm-hmm. progression i'm going to tell you the story don't worry <laughs> i do it so uh, growing up i was always a big fan of high fantasy lord of the rings aragon whatever you name it i probably have read it or seen it or whatever um but i was never i never knew that role-playing game, tabletop role-playing games was were a thing i i played a lot of video games and always picked video games that were like rpg in nature and fantasy and many like wow clones kind of situation mm-hmm. right um but never got into tabletop rpgs because i didn't know they were a thing even i think my brother once mentioned that he played dnd and i was like ah sure whatever i like video games i don't care um but then i found out uh the geek and sundry channel and this was pre-critical role. This was when Will Wheaton was doing a thing called Ashes of Volcana. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's going back. Yeah, it is. exactly. <laughs> and then I, I think I watched it during a summer, the entire series, and I loved it. And what I did, instead of playing a game, no, I went like a, an idiot and wrote my own little RPG uh, <laughs> about, I think I don't even remember, something I was playing that summer. And I wrote like something related to that. Um after that, it just kind of vanished for like two years. And then I still had a pop-up here and there about the Geek and Sundry channel. And suddenly this thing called Critical Role starts showing up. I don't pay attention. doesn't matter. I was busy with other things. 
And then I think they were around episode 30 of campaign one or 40. And I said, sure, I have a thesis to write. So I'm just going to procrastinate a lot. And I started watching Critical Role. And then the spark ignited again. And I remembered, oh, wait a second. I know about this. I wrote a, a silly thing uh, a few years back. I don't know. And then I called my friends and said, yeah, sure. That looks super cool. And they all started watching Critical Role. And it's like, sure, fine. Let's play something. And we started playing D&D. And no one wanted to GM, of course, the classic conundrum. Yes. Uh, so I did it. So the first time I played D&D, I GM'd it, which was insane. Don't do that at home, please. <laughs> Um, so yeah, basically, it kind of was the thing that initiated my tabletop RPG gaming life. But apparently, I knew about it before. I just was an idiot. But hey, there you go. Critical Role changing lives. <laughs> there you go. Fantastic. I think it's it's just so cool. And so, with all that said, then we're gonna dive into the book. And because you all know about it, you all have told me that um, this is one of those things with Critical Role is that it's a it is a very it's a four hour stream every week and so you may not it's you miss details or you may miss episodes and all this kind of stuff but still you all know so much more than me so if i say anything like and you and you need to correct me by all means jump in and say whoa 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 hold up tom that's not how that is okay so what we're gonna do is what is the what is the explorer's guide to wild mountain we start with the, obviously we get the opening chapter. What is the story? All right. This is the, the section that we are all very familiar with in any um, campaign setting. This is where we're going to get who are the movers and shakers within Wild Now. We're going to get the, we're going to get the calendar. We're going to get the time. But I think what's so important here is that we're going to get the feeling for what is wild mount in exandria and that is a land that is torn apart by war politics and intrigue and i think that's very important i think they really do a good job of expressing that i was having a hard time at first when this book came out um and i will be first to say i was not particularly excited for it because i was like oh great we're getting another high fantasy book and but it's it's not necessarily that there's a there's a very strong emphasis on politics here and then the war that is absolutely being fought between the the Kryn dynasty and the Dwendalian empire so this is this this opening chapter we get the the obviously the long far out history of the wild mount and then we get some gods and deities um so what did you all think about this first chapter then I mean, I've always, I've always loved, even in the, the first book that was done with Green Ronin, um, the intro chapters, because I think they're, I think a lot of the time you can spend a lot, especially with any kind of D&D or any RPG setting, um, the mistake of like putting too much in your prehistory. And then it becomes difficult to read. Nobody can remember any of it. It's filled with tons of events that no one's ever going to remember that never come up again. And the one thing I really liked about this, like they did with the first book, was they gave you all the important stuff and they put it up front. So rather than giving you a thousand years worth of just stuff, it's all the really key things, the things that get mentioned again later on that link into the factions or into some of the places that are mentioned in the Gazetteer. You you can connect the dots as you go through the book whilst also being able to kind of pick and choose which bits you want to really 
read in depth about that might be relevant and if it's not it, it's not you can just read it as background information and i i just like how they've condensed that all down and actually made it really relevant and easy to read whereas there are mm-hmm. some settings that i've definitely read for rpgs where i skip past that bit entirely because yep there's so much irrelevancy written into it that really if i skip to the bit that just talks about modern day that tells me everything i need to know but the history here has been made so important to everything else in the book I just, I just okay. find that really useful, especially from like a design and development point of view for me, because it, it gets you straight into knowing what you need to know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nunu, uh, what'd you think of this? So following up on what Virginia was saying, I think it's really well structured. And, and that's also partly because the way Mercer designed his world, because basically there's this cataclysmic event that basically wiped out everything pre um, a certain date. So in all honesty, you just need to say a few paragraphs before it was like this, but now this is what matters. So you don't need, as, as Virginia was saying, you don't need to really go into depth about everything that happened in the past because no one knows. If you're in that world, basically you don't know. And it's part of the, the open-ended um, specificity of this book and this uh, setting is that the dms can say yep this totally happened in the past because uh yep no no so now this is canon and and stuff like that that really helps and also you don't really need to read everything if you're if you want to focus on politics maybe you read the history and the wild mount part after the calamity leave the gods behind it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. if if a name of a god is referenced in the faction sections or the gazetteer whatever just then go back and see what it is but you don't need to really dive into it in full detail which is good yeah i think that's very important i think that what is good all about this is it is there is some for me personally there was some stuff here that was like really dry all right this is a dense section here but what i liked about it was it was very modular so if i breezed over one section and I jumped into this next paragraph or next section of the history, I didn't feel like I have missed anything. And I still felt like I'm still getting a chunk of Exandria's history that I can use. So it doesn't, you can take and choose what is really interesting to you. So I thought that was really cool. But the other thing that I absolutely loved about this section, all right, which is this is going over into, we kind of merge the overview in chapter one together, but in chapter one is the pantheon of the wild mount and you will notice that a lot of this stuff is there's mercer takes a lot of deities and gods from other settings but but hey this is he is first and foremost to admit in the the introduction here that this was his homebrewed setting it's so he took from what he had available to him and wizard said yeah sure let's have these deities in here and there is some really cool stuff i'd never care about the deities and gods in really any books but i was reading these and this was absolutely engaging here there was some really great really great stuff so i wanted to ask you all did you is there anything do you guys have any favorites here um with the deities Just a brief comment on that mercer has a very had a very big influence in 4e i think fourth edition so that's why some of the deities he, he chose to include are basically 4e deities that actually were I think are not in five E. I'm might be mistaken. Like Avandra the Changebringer, I think that's that's not a five E thing, but he just kind of stole it from four E. Um so that's uh that's a point that I, I thought I should raise. Apart from that, I think more more interesting that the prime deities, I 
absolutely loved the lesser idols situation because the mm. world here yes. works in a way that the prime deities cannot interfere too much. So I think yeah, they're locked behind the divine gate, right? Exactly, yeah. Because yeah, and that's I, I mean it goes back to like the beginning how very well that's explained and why I think this section is where it is. Um, it's because you've got that history with the calamity, and it's almost a nice the way that it's designed, whether by purpose or accident, because the prime deities are locked behind this divine gate. You don't really have to worry about them all that much because. By the time you're playing with gods, you've got, you know, you're at like level 17 to 20 characters that are basically gods themselves. So it's kind of nice because um, even the prime deities themselves only interact very little, I guess, in the early stages of any campaign with any of the characters. And it's written in really well, but they're so grounded in the setting, especially in um, in Wildmount because of the, the split in terms of what gods people are allowed to openly worship and you know stuff like that between the Dundalian Empire and the, the Korean Empire so or the Korean dynasty yeah. sorry the these are the lesser idols and the deities there are so many of them that I want to play a warlock and they are my patron there are so many of them like I'm a huge like the Deseret the Twilight Phoenix as somebody who doesn't know anything about Critical Role I read this and I'm like whoa the Mount of Asmodeus, a Twilight Phoenix. This is the most edgy thing ever, and I want it. Yeah, so. I saw that bit and was just like, I want to play, play with this. Like, I think that's the thing. Ever, you know, starting at the first page of this book and reading through, it's like I want to play with all of these things. The thing that made me really happy is somebody that's obviously I'm not massively caught up on campaign two, but I'm massively in love still with campaign one. Was the fact that we finally find out a little bit more about Vesh. Um, who was this, uh, who was this character was some kind of patron or god to, I can't think of the character's name now. Kishore. Um, Kishore, yeah. Uh, in the first game, and we never really got to know much. You always knew that, um, you know, him and Mercer had stuff going on behind the scenes that they knew about, but never had a chance to really play out on screen because it never really came up in that depth. But we knew that she wasn't quite a god and that she wasn't, quite good either and then when i look through and saw her you know come up in the in the lesser idols i was like this is great because now i can play with this and the idea that you have powerful beings which i think is another big fantasy trope that often i think gets ignored a lot in some dnd games is that people it's either the gods or they're just powerful sorcerers or wizards but having that kind of in between these people that have lifted themselves up almost to god tier through charisma or following or just by sheer power over the ages is really interesting because suddenly you can have characters that aren't 17th to 20th level interacting with godlike figures that don't have the campaign wrecking abilities of godlike figures in those early to mid tiers which i think is really fun because everyone wants to you know poke the the great old one who might cause and wreck havoc if they know there's not a completely cataclysmic event going to happen when they do. <laughs> so picking up on your earlier point about the you learning about Vesh, right? I think that's another thing about this book that is so good and well thought because it's not just like, here's Critical Role and dump everything that's been dumped <laughs> on, on stream, right? It's equally yes. exciting for someone that doesn't know anything about the setting and they can read through and really understand it from a fresh point of view. But for us, uh, there's like at least, I'm going to say 
70% of the information is not, you know, you cannot get it by watching Cricket Roll. It's new things. You might have know, you might know some concepts of it, but he's here. It's really well explained things that you did, didn't know were like this or didn't know it existed or heard in passing once or twice. It's the case of Fesh. It's the case of the, um, I don't remember. Oh, there was like this, this three Titan. No, not Titans. Something, that's in the lesser idols. I don't remember the name, but it's uh, the Phoenix that she mentioned, the Ukatoa and the Worm, some kind of Worm. Those are the three kind of dormant entities that people can try and free. I think it's one of the things that they um, try and make you do if you play in, in, in Wildmount. And I think they were mentioned in passing because one of the characters in Critical mm. Role was a warlock of Ukatoa and... The other two were mentioned, but we never knew what they were. And now, and now we know because it's in the book. <laughs> I will say this too. I, as somebody who's coming in new, I ne- never, never once did I feel like there was something in here that I felt like this is like insider knowledge or like an inside joke or something that I just didn't get or wasn't for me. It all felt like if I didn't know this would just, I, if nobody told me that this was a critical role, I would just pick this up and I'd be like, oh, this is a kind of cool world. And I would go along my day. So that's one of the things that I will say for somebody who's coming in new and fresh to that, that is definitely something to consider. It's, so. it's one thing I was really looking forward to when they announced this, because obviously Green Rodin did the first book and I really loved that. And what I loved about it was that as a critical role fan, I went through and was like, oh, here's this place that they went to. And now I get to learn all the other stuff we never saw. You got to see all of the bits that they didn't, they didn't go west this way. So we never got to see this town that was mentioned in passing conversation, like uh, Nuno said. So I was really looking forward to seeing if they did a similar thing with this book, where if you knew the show, you'd get to see all of the bits that were just on the brink of your vision watching, but also do what they did with the first book, where it never assumed that you'd watch the show and it acted as, as its own kind of standalone campaign book. So even if, like you just said, if you weren't a fan, you're just looking at a really cool setting that explains everything, doesn't kind of punish you for not having seen the show. Because there are so many settings that, um, especially in D&D, you know, Forgotten Realms has got a huge long history. Yes, and sometimes if you haven't learned a bit of that history, it can be very difficult to dig in and figure out this one reference to a thing because you've got to go back to you know an earlier edition or back to another supplement book and so when I started reading this as somebody who is not caught up on campaign two I was like oh they've done it here they've done it again really well with Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I don't know what's happening I don't understand these things that it's now telling me because I haven't seen the show this just I know it's critical role I can see it in the writing and the way that these things have been created but I don't feel punished for not having been caught up on it. And I think that's really important whenever you make any RPG book, especially setting books, because you want people to play in it. You don't want people to have to read the book and then read three other books and Google everything to understand their setting. You want it to come alive off the page to them. So they just, they just get it as they read it. Absolutely. And I'll say this, that I may not, this is a big book and I may not be you setting my game in this 
particular setting, but I'm currently running a Ghost of Saltmarsh campaign, and you better believe I'm going to whole cloth just take the Menagerie Coast, and boom, it's now Saltmarsh. Like, that's just, I'm sorry. That's what it is now. And so, but the last thing I want to say before we jump into the factions that kind of, I think, will give a good perspective to this is the when this book was first announced, I was definitely not super on board because, like I said, it was like, it's another high fantasy. It's it's something that, it's a property that I'm not necessarily interested in. And I've been clamoring so much. I'm like, I want an original Dungeons and Dragons setting. And it, I don't know why it didn't just smack me in the face that that's what this, that's what this is. And I think it was Matt Mercer who said in an interview that, hey, this is going to be the first campaign setting that's been published since Eberron. And I was just like, oh, wait a second. That makes sense. This is, I was like, oh, wait a second. This is what I've been complaining and wanting. So, so I think that's the, um, that's the perspective that I went in with this book. So with that said, though, we, that, that's the, the whole introduction of what this all is. But now we get into a lot of what can really set your game apart. And that is the factions and society. So Nunu, what is, tell us about this chapter. Absolutely. Yeah. So faction societies, this is where things get more politics and whispery and, and interesting, I'd say. Um, if you, in your games, you like a bit of conflict, you like, like hush hush secrets, assassination, stuff like that. This is what happens here. You get basically factions that are so intertwined and so complex that you can do whatever you want, even if it's just, it can go from like politics, if you choose the Dwendalian Empire and the Queen Dynasty, there's a war brewing. Um, I think there are a few paragraphs that let you kind of walk back and forth in time, kind of explains what happens before, during, and in the future, kind of. Uh, so if you don't want the war to have escalated, you can draw it back. If you want the war to be starting now, you can do that. Um, and also, there's so many things here that you can do. If you don't want to be part of a a ruling faction you can take a look at the myriad which is like the classic thieves guild assassins guild situation uh you have cults you have interesting regimes that kind of are reclusive in some way and have different methodologies methodologies of working for example the diarchy of Uthodern is super super cool and it kind of breaks so many um old tropes of high fantasy so take a look at that uh but overall so lots of options but overall in each one you get what they are very briefly described so it doesn't bore you you get their goals their relationships with other factions and the rest of the world and you get figures of interest and this is where it gets interesting pun intended um (laughs) uh you get a few characters that can you can do whatever you want with them. They can be good, evil, neutral. And that's a very good point of all of them. They just uh, give you a lot of flexibility to do whatever you want with them. There are. And like you said, there is a lot here. There's 13 individual guilds and factions. Obviously, the Dwendalian Empire and the Kryn the Dynasty are ones that are heavily featured in here. But there is so, there is so, much, to, so much here to to take away from. And this is going back to like Eberron rising from the last war. Um, the last book that was out this, they had a faction section and that's what I absolutely loved in that book. And this book has continued the tradition of just really good faction sections. So Virginia, um, what did you think about this whole, this, this all these different factions and movers and shakers within the, the world of wild Mount? 
Uh, so I really, I really love, like, it's weird. I look at, it's hard for me now to separate how I feel about books just on their writing, because I also look about how, how they're laid out and how they're presented, because that's mm-hmm. part of what I do. So it's kind of ingrained in my brain now. But I really love how they have presented all the factions in this. Um, again, it was one of those things that having had expectations set up from the first book where they did a very similar format, I was like, are they going to do this again? Because I loved it. And they they did. And what I like is that you can read as much or as little about these factions as you want without it having a disastrous impact on your game. So if you're if you don't want to play high politics, if you're you know, if you know your characters aren't going to be interested in a lot of this, you can just read that kind of beginning opening bit that tells you kind of who the faction is and leave it at that. You know who they are and you can look at their goals and what they want. And you can just leave it there as like a shadow, a backdrop in your game as your characters go around the world. But if, like Nuno said, if you want to have really complex political games where this matters and things are actually happening in the background, kind of on their own accord that might affect your story, then the the goal section is really interesting. You haven't got to search through like pages of information. You just want to see what this faction wants. It's right there. And I think the thing that makes it really strong here is because you've got all these factions and Wildmount's got such a complex history, having that section on relationships so you know how how this faction interacts with other factions is really important. And I think there's a lot of settings that in RPGs that kind of miss that out. They present all these factions and go, they don't like them or them, but you don't, off politics is a lot more subtle than that. It's very rare yes. that, you know, two factions will outwardly hate each other and it's just war they just hate each other because they're different there's often lots of intertwining where maybe they didn't and maybe there are bits that do work together and i like how they've built that complexity in without making it difficult to read and figures of interest i just love i'm a lazy dungeon master i don't like having to come up with important npcs on the fly because i will forget their name what they want, what their goals were within 10 minutes of them being out of the scene. So being able to just open a book when a character needs to meet someone important. I've had this happen in game. I had, uh, I ran a Taldori campaign and my players wanted to, uh, wanted to talk to somebody important in Taldore from um, the, the Guild of Arcanists. So I just opened the book up and went, that guy, that's who they talk to. He's important. I know what he does. I know his background is right here and I can't forget it now. And I think that's like the the beauty of all of these sections is that you can actually put this setting book down at a table and use it as you game. Oh, this faction suddenly become important. I can flip to this page while the players are talking. I can skim it for 30 seconds Mm -hmm. and grab that information I need to kind of do something on the fly and then go back and really delve into it later. And I think that's proof of a, a good setting book when it's not just something that you read and then leave at home where it's something where you're like no i can have i can actually use this for reference in game while things are happening yes i will say this uh the when i first started reading this section the opening faction is the dwendalian empire and i would be a liar if i didn't say that i was bored out of my mind reading about them i was like this is just the fantasy version of the roman empire bunch of humans i don't care about these people and i'm like great this i'm like oh i'm so disappointed but then i got to the the kren dynasty and it was like complete opposite i was like oh my gosh this is the best rpg book ever like it was because it's such it there's so you get 
and hold on, I don't want to knock. If you really like the Dwendalian Empire, that's good for you. It doesn't work for me. And but the Kryn Dynasty does. Like you were, Virginia, you were saying the um the the cool NPCs. There are amazing NPCs here, and I love that they all have these fancy titles. Like it's like Bright Queen. Dust Captain, the Shadow Hand, the Sunbreaker, and I'm like, this is what I want from an RPG book. So that was kind of, that's kind of my two cents about it's it. It's kind of what happened with me because um, the war thing, sure, it's fun. It's not really my my thing. Uh, so I read the Dwendal Empire, Queen Dynasty. It was fine. And then I went down, started with the Cerberus Assembly. By the way, uh, Cerberus Assembly is a perfect example how the figures of interest are super well written. Because you have a bunch of mages, and some of them are evil, some of them are neutral, some of them are good. It's basically, you want to plot with the Cerberus Assembly, you want them to be the villains, you want them to be the bystanders, or the good guys, you got it. It's it's amazing. Uh, not what I was aiming at, but there's this piece of information. Uh, then I got to the Clovis Concord, and I was like, all right, that's it. That's my jam. I don't need anything else in this book. <laughs> As, yeah, there is, it's a, it's a, it's really, there's a lot of great stuff here. The one last thing that I'm not sure if there was any standout factions here other than the, the big two for you all, but for me, definitely the Claret Orders. I'm, this is an order, different orders of monster hunters. And they were, there's some set, there's some stuff in the Gazetteer later that I, I'll talk about about these folks and they are cool. So I love that they all have different symbols and it's just, it's really sweet. Yeah, I think I think for me, like the Cerberus Assembly really stood out um, because they are the perfect example of uh, how the factions are so intertwined because of their history with other factions and kind of, you know, what they did back uh, going back to like the Pantheons, um, Dessa at the Twilight Phoenix. They were involved in imprisoning that particular lesser idol and they've got this long history and they're intertwined. So you can never really tell if they're the good guys or the bad guys or you know they're none of the factions here are black and white which i really like because that's that's more real to me and more real to my players when they're playing nobody just wants to be good or evil you know alignment charts are useful but they're not how people really work and i think cerberus assembly is a good example of a faction that blurs that line yes you might have some evil mages or some good mages but once you put them as a whole where does that leave you depending on what kind of campaign you want to run um i also really like the children of malice the children uh kind of um that lolf has taken kind of into her fold of all of these these people not just um drow but obviously goblin folk and stuff that have kind of been turned away and how that plays with the Kryn dynasty and a lot of the drow that have kind of turned from her since her being locked down in the abyss so like there's a that particular faction would make very interesting gameplay for me i think because i like taking factions that are sometimes in some settings presented as just evil or bad and really exploring why and perhaps they're not maybe they're just a a different side of a coin so factions Mm -hmm. that kind of have that multifaceted idea when they're not just bad are always really interesting for me 
Yeah, I think that's in, we're, we're going to start talking about the gazetteer now, but I think that what you just said kind of carries over as a theme throughout this entire book that I guess alignment isn't necessarily black and white with critical role because there's a lot of stuff they talk about with like orcs and even yetis and eyes lacrosse that are these traditionally evil um, characters that the, the script has been kind of flipped in this book to allow them to be more nuanced and complex, which is really cool. The but the next section is the Wild Mount Gazetteer, this massive chunk of the book. So Virginia, um, why don't you take it away? What is a what's a gazetteer and what is this particular gazetteer all about? Um so the gazetteer is kind of the the, the section that goes through all of the, the different places um and lots of information about some of the larger cities and some of the smaller settlements um here. So this kind of they, they move across um using the map, which I always like that they put on the page. So you know where you are in this place. Yes. You can kind of connect the dots between where everything is. Um and they tend to the bigger settlements they tend to pull out and they show you things like uh the population density, you know how much percentage of this is human is it a more dwarf area is it very cosmopolitan is it quite secular um it tells you about their government and organizations that might be there as well as things like the geography or other kind of salient points about some of the larger prominent cities and then you also have all of the kind of bits that spur off of that the little settlements there's always a paragraph about them which is just enough that you know what should be happening there, but not so much that you're restricted from creating stuff to put there, um, which I always really enjoy because as a as a game master, you need there to be blanks. If there's no blanks, then you're, you kind of have to try and learn all of these places from memory and hold them in your head. But when there's blank space to fill in, um, which is what this gazetteer does as well, it tells you just enough so that you can start building. Um, but it also is filled my favorite bit about the gazetteer in this it's filled with plot seeds categorized by low mid and high level um so there's lots of places and some of them you start reading and you're like okay this isn't the most interesting place it's kind of cool maybe i could do this here or that here and then there's a plot seed for it and it's not just the big main cities you'll just have you know places that have got one or two paragraphs and a really cool plot seed that makes you suddenly want to take your players there when there wasn't anything really there before there are so many cool plot seats here and I'll just kind of, I'll, I'll ask you all what your favorite one is, but I'll tell you, all right. So mine, I have it marked here was there is, I was talking about the twilight Phoenix earlier. All right. So there is M- M- Mount Mentiri. All right. And this is a volcano that this twilight Phoenix is trapped underneath and it is guarded by a fire giant. And it is just, I was like, Oh man, this is, this is awesome. And there's like a, this is where I'm sending my players. They're going to go get the Twilight Phoenix. So there was, but that's my particular. Did you all have any favorite ones that really stood out to you? To be honest, not really. <laughs> I okay. kind of skimmed through the plot hooks because I, I was like trying to find information, um, about the, uh, the, the places themselves. And as, as I yeah. read, so usually what I do when I read these books, as I read them, I kind of store little pieces of information in my mind. All right, this is something cool. Probably on a second read, I'll go through the plot hooks, but, uh, but not yet. No. It's a, yeah, no, no, that's a good point. This is a very dense section and it can be hard to read. And I think it, the best way to get through this and to really enjoy it is to, 
skim it. And if you think, if you see something that's interesting, then you read that it's cause there's a whole lot here. So, but Nunu, um, what was your kind of, do you have any sections then that you were like, cause I knew you've got your game that's mm-hmm. going to be coming up your stream. Is there anything from the gazetteer that you you're, you you're taking and then throwing it into your campaign? Yes, uh, under the risk of being a bit spoilery. And it, also, it varies with what the players choose to do, of course, especially when I, yeah, when I do of course. My, my own personal style of GMing, which is, so tell me about this, uh, and what do you really want to do now? Uh, where are we going? So I let the players do as much world building as I do, because I feel like there's a, there's a, mm-hmm. a huge gap between DM and players, usually, when you play D&D. Uh, that doesn't happen with other games. Like, Well, let's not get into that. This is not why we're here. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> um, but I try. I try and include the players as much as I can in the world building. But I, I'm hoping. I'm hoping they go to the Menagerie Coast because that looks super, super cool. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's just that is. I was shocked at how much there is so much pirate stuff in yes. here. And I don't know if that's a critical role thing, but you've got this, the Ukatoa. You've got the. You've got the Menagerie Coast. There's like a the one of the the Revelry, which is a faction of like there's a pirate guy named the Plank Kink. And I'm like, yeah, I'm stealing that too. And so there's so much good stuff over on the Menagerie There's a really cool thing about it it being so large, the book, because if you want to, if you like a a certain setting more than others, I almost guarantee you that you're going to find it in Wildmount. There's cosmic horror stuff in here. Yeah, Yeah, there is. Uh, There's there's like zombie horror stuff as well. Like it's one of the things I really like about all of the locations, but also the plot seeds that they have a good distribution they're not all just classic typical high fantasy stuff it's not just go and get the magic thing and bring it back to here or kill the evil god like one of my favorite ones i came across is a place called um uh vergeson sanatorium yes which has been set up to kind of send enemies of the state and spies so you can have a really weird kind of horror based thing around that you can do political intrigue there but one of the plot seeds for high level characters is patient zero and basically they've been developing uh an arcane disease for warfare and the players show up and it's like silent hill the disease has driven a bunch of people mad. And I love the fact that you can jump from high fantasy and it still be high fantasy, but then go into an arc that could be pure Silent Hill style horror. And it's good for players as well, because if you want to have characters that have got vastly different arcs, much like they do in Critical Role, where they've all got their own thing that focuses around its own themes, you can do that in Wildmount because there are places for all of it. Like, like Nuno said, there are places for cosmic horror. There are places for pirates. There's a place for traditional high fantasy. There's a place for horror. It's, it's all kind of there and it's worked in and you can move between those things quite easily because of how this has been written. Yeah, this is, I actually, I say this there, obviously everybody wishes for what the next product is going to be, but I really do hope that they take some of these sections from here and release some adventure modules of some of these more interesting locations. Like the, there's some really cool stuff here. And I think it's hilarious, Virginia, that you actually mentioned the sanatorium because I got one of my, one of my sticky notes is there is because the art is so cool of this, this moody looking building. I might, my, my, my sticky note, it says, it says, I don't know if you guys can see, it says cool art empire sucks. Like that's what it says. Like, so, but it's, there's so many great standout areas in the, the gazetteer. I love it. 
the uh, one that really stood out to me was the, I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but up in the um, Islick, Iselcross, um, or Iselcross, it is this Iselcross, it is this island, or uh, this this section of islands that is the furthest northern point of Wild Mount. And it is weird. It is, there is some weird stuff going on there. There is this ancient city from before the, or right after the cataclysm that has like crashed here. And there's all this weird ancient technology and adventurers going there to try to get it, but it's just this lots of strange stuff happening there. It's very um there's like some you could do like John Carpenter's the thing like in this section. And so that was one of definitely one of the standout areas for myself. So before we go any further, is was there anything else from the Gazetteer that would really just kind of hooked you guys or didn't necessarily work? I have to say the Yeti Sanctuary, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, uh, Alawak Sanctuary, which is a settlement of Yetis that have gained intelligence all because of, uh, if I have a look here, um, it's to do with a crystal and something impacted and it gives them intelligence so they can understand and they form a community. Uh, they start learning from like explorers who have wandered too far close and have, you know, have tragically perished through some horrible accident. You know, they try not to kill anyone or attack anybody, but they try to learn from these scraps that they can pick up from adventurers that have passed through. Um, and I love the fact, I always love it when people take monstrous races, those classically just bad creatures that are just usually there for cannon fodder to make a journey exciting. And you start seeing, you know, what, what they're really like, that this community of yetis, you know, gains some intelligence. And so they're, they, they're building a community. They're trying to stay hidden, but they want to learn. And that's always really interesting. Whenever you take creatures that would otherwise just be traditionally kind of mindless or violent and start actually showing them having some community, because even natural predators, if you look at a pride of lions, have got a sense of, you know, community about them. They have roles. They work together. They're not just mindless creatures they you know they have a kind of sentience and an awareness so seeing a, a section that's so dedicated to playing up those themes that these creatures have an awareness i think there's even like a plot seed where you can like you go out and um capture um like wild yetis to try and bring them in so that they too can you know enjoy some of the sentience and be yeah. become part of this community which is really interesting and has a lot of like moral themes as well which is always interesting in these situations and that is another section that is up in Isilcross. so if you all take anything from what we just talked about you want to set your campaign in the in Isilcross <laughs> because it's very cool you want right. weird snow things <laughs> Weird snow things are the best thing. You both, you both so. touch on, on points, which is basically what Mercer did really good, and probably the other writers as well, which is destroying tropes. Uh, you mentioned there's the the uh, all the monstrous races over in the eastern uh, Winander, I think is the name of the place, and uh, the, the Sandian Yetis, of course. And a, a very blatant thing that's there for breaking tropes is in the Graying Wildlands, if you go into details on the Uthern city, which kind of ties with the faction section as well. You know, one of the most famous tropes is elves hate dwarves, right? 
So yes. this place is ruled by a diarchy of a dwarf and an elf, and they live in, in like synergy and, and symbiotic almost kind of nature. So I would recommend going and set your campaign in Uthodern as well. <laughs> yeah, that was definitely another really cool section too. Um, absolutely. If you want to do something a little bit different, kind of throw the players for a loop. It's very cool stuff all throughout the gazetteer. So there is tons of stuff in the gazetteer. I'm not, we have just barely touched on anything. There is so much stuff to set a campaign here. That's what a campaign setting is. It is the land. It is the world. And that's what this section is. It's a massive chunk of the book. Uh, if you are a fan of critical role, I'm sure there's going to be all sorts of stuff in here that you're like, Oh, I remember this or seeing this. And then as somebody who doesn't like lots of cool stuff. So that leads us into chapter four, which are character options. And a, a lot of people are going to buy this book just for these character options or get them on D and D beyond. This is where a, um, a lot of people will come to this for these sections. All right. And what this, what this chapter does is obviously we get the races of wild mount and it rehashes. How do all of the races within Dungeons and Dragons fit? And then they also go ahead and all of the races that have been included in other books other than the player's handbook. So um, Elemental Princess of the Apocalypse, you've got the uh, Volo's Guide and uh, the uh, they have taken those races and put the full-blown, put them here so that you just need this book and the player's handbook. It, it's not so like you need like five different books. You just need this book, your player's handbook, your monster manual, your dungeon master guide, your core stuff. And so they've taken all these races, thrown them in here. And then we get some new subclasses. Uh, we get the, we get one martial archetype. We get the fighter, Echo Knight. We get some wizard schools and we get some spells in the heroic chronicle. There's a lot of stuff to kind of take in here, but the, from here, I think one of the first new things that pops up is the hollow one. All right. Before we even get to the subclasses, we get the hollow one. So this is a cool mechanical thing that you can throw into your game. And um, Nunu, what do you think about the hollow one? I think it, it's it's super interesting. I think Matt Mercer also have a, a similar thing with the Lingering Soul, I think, in, in the DM's Guild, which is basically a, a thing that he output at in the DM's Guild that allowed players to continue playing their characters after death. I think they, they yeah, yes. something like that. I think this is the Wizards of the Ghost version of that, kind of, because not only it lets you do that, it lets you do more. And it's supposed to not be a race, if I read it correctly. It's supposed to be like a boon kind of situation. Yeah, it's, yeah. A, mm-hmm, it's a boon. I think it's super interesting because... We all know that we love our characters, right? And we need yes. to understand that in Dungeons and Dragons, death happens and you lose characters. But that doesn't need to be the end. Um, there are no. several options or like favors with gods, uh, whatever, resurrection rituals. But why not have a, one more option that lets you play a hollow one? It's basically a, a character returned from the dead, dead by mysterious reasons and gives you a bunch of cool perks and a few drawbacks. So that's really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really interesting. I definitely, I was thinking about this with Critical Role. It's a cast of people 
who have come to play a game. And so it, like you were saying, death is in RPG. So what happens? Like, obviously death has happened in critical role. I mean, I've seen the Twitter uproar about certain characters dying and everything, but the, um, but you got to have something that you could fall back to because it's not just like you have this beloved character in this form of entertainment that all of a sudden randomly dies like like it or not critical role at the end of the day is an entertainment medium and rpgs are weird and it's not necessarily a tv show but it's not necessarily a game and i think this is something that mercer has included that will allow people to kind of bring some aspects of keeping characters into the game and you may not want to make a new character just yet so the the only other thing I want to say about the hollow one uh, is that the this is undead. All right. If you got a cleric, you need to be very careful within your party because as soon as that cleric casts turn undead, guess what? You're going to flee. So there's some definitely some mechanical benefits and some drawbacks here. But uh, Virginia, what did you what do you think about allowing a character to live on after death? So uh, I I'm all for it, and I've actually done this in a campaign set in Taldore. Um, okay. I, I had a character who, uh, I, I was running out of the abyss by Wizards of the Coast, but in my mind, it was kind of set in the Underdark as Taldore, and it got, it got weird, but we had a character who died and they were really enjoying it. And I'm a big believer, like, all of my, all my regular D&D players knew death was a real thing. I have no issue with killing your characters. I will never set you up to be killed outright, but if you do something stupid, if you choose not to run when clearly you need to run, yeah. You get yourself killed. I'm not going to necessarily save you from that. I will give you opportunities for an out, but it can happen. And everyone was fine with that. Everyone, we had a lot of emotional character deaths. It was wonderful. Um, but I've always liked how Mercer handled character death and resurrection. So if, if you don't know, um, I, Mercer's rules for resurrection are very different and what's in the standard player's handbook. I think he's published them on DM's Guild. But the idea is that characters have a chance to make some tests to try and influence that resurrection and then that shifts to dc and at the end of it you roll a straight roll the dm just makes a roll against whatever dc has now been set by the characters and that determines whether or not the resurrection happens or not so it it puts character death more in the hands of the players with some agency and i'm all for that i'll never kill somebody's character if they really don't want them to die because that's not fun for anybody character no. death has to have some meaning so i think matt mercer what nuno was talking about is what happened to vax in the first campaign he kind of came back as this revenant with unfinished business that could stick around just long enough to do that which all broke our hearts at the end of campaign one so the idea of another kind of character boon or as it's here like a supernatural gift where if you really don't want your character to die, maybe you had a really cool backstory with this cool art planned with your DM and just the roll, the dice went bad. You made a stupid decision, but you really want to fulfill that character. You really want to see them finish that bit of their story because it was really yeah. interesting. And maybe the GM has, you know, done a whole bunch of prep for the next three sessions to get you to go through that. There's now an option that just, that, feels more immersive than just going oh we'll just retcon that or yeah oh you find a diamond in the next room so everything's fine you've <sighs> actually got something that you can add to the story as opposed to just editing it and editing is fine if that's what you want to do there's nothing wrong with just going we're retconning that that's not fun for anyone but being able to add another layer to, to a character that perhaps somebody will find even more interesting especially when like you said mechanically this has a lot of 
boons, but it's also got a lot of drawbacks. You're now undead. You got to, like you said, if you have a cleric in a party, that's going to change <laughs> how you have to interact in certain situations with the rest of your party. And that can be really interesting. So I think it's always good to have the option of saving a character from death and allowing them to add an extra layer to that story if they want to, as opposed to just retconning it entirely and actually being able to develop that, you know, save from death into something even more interesting that just furthers the story and kind of brings a lot alive, I think. Okay. Yeah, no, I think that's it's that's a really good point, especially like we want story, really story focused games, and this is a perfect way to do it. And the I'm already thinking about my super edgy blade packed warlock of the Raven Queen hollow one character that I want to make. So anyway. <laughs> the with a with a dip into Echo Knight, which we're about to talk about. So, but the the Echo Knight. All right, this is the first subclass that we get. It's for the fighter. Um, the can any of you critters explain to me why everyone lost their mind when they heard that the Echo Knight was going to be in this book? Is that is this is the Echo Knight like a key part of Campaign Two? I know Virginia, you said you're not completely caught up on it yet, but. Um, do any of you guys know, like, what is the significance of the Echo Knight within the critical wor- world? Like, I don't what think is it? it's really a key aspect, or there isn't any, any okay. cool character or loved character that's an Echo Knight. It's just, it's, it's really, really cool. It's really, really cool. Okay. <laughs> I think it showed up in a couple of episodes when they were um, going to, to Jorhas, so to the Korean dynasty, Korean dynasty. There was one Echo Knight there, and the way Mercer, of course, described the abilities and whatnot was uh, so oh, cool. Yeah? I, I think, I might be wrong here, but I don't think there's any super meaningful explanation. It's just, it's cool, and it showed up a couple of times. <laughs> it is very cool. I think I think some of it as well is to do with uh, with the whole new magic that was introduced with this, with the, the Dunamis and the Dunamancy, and obviously the Echo Knight's me first reading about it is in this book because obviously I'm not caught up on campaign two. Yeah. Um, what's cool for me is when it comes to lots of fighter abilities are very martial and you don't get a lot of fun kind of magic stuff for a lot of martial characters outside of maybe monks or the odd like magical attack or your attacks class is magical. So I think that a lot of the excitement uh, possibly around this might have been the fact that you you have a fighter subclass who is drawing on this kind of new magic element that's been introduced so not only have you got another option for fighters but it's so vastly different from the options that wizards of the coast have put out previously for their fighter characters and it means that actually even if you're a fighter you don't have to do that like oh i'm not a spellcaster so i can't play with the fun new magic that mercer's introduced and actually be like oh i'm a fighter i can play with the fun new magic that's just been introduced i think perhaps some of that inclusion in the the new is what's driving some of its popularity as well yeah the for those who the echo what the echo knight is it is basically it's a fighter that has the ability to cast an echo or a shadow a, some sort of part of themselves and the this this being appears and it mimics the the fighter and you're able to use this echo to make attacks in order to do battlefield maneuvers and to use to potentially block damage. You're basically creating a copy of yourself that is really 
usable. It's almost like the 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 mirror image spell for the the wizard the wizard a wizard has, but this is for a fighter. And it's really there is some very strong mechanical benefits here with the ability to take extra attacks. And it is and then it's just an it's a bonus action to create your echo it's not like a full action it's just like boom there's my there's my echo now i have an extra attack i i also like the the echo it's got a a seventh level feature called echo avatar where you can transfer your consciousness to your echo so you can basically um weird enough i i play a lot of uh video games and rainbow six siege is one of them and there's a character there if anyone's played it who can send out like a series of drones that mimic her form so you can run around the map and like scan out the enemy so like as as a battle technician or even as characters that really like stealth the ability to transfer your consciousness is echo that can then kind of run around do whatever it likes interact um and it can be up to a thousand feet away from you. It's a long way. You could send this into a dungeon, into a dangerous trap-filled place and scout it out. You could send it in to listen to political intrigue and then just disappear it whenever you like. No one knew you were there, but you can hear and see everything that's going on. It's basically um, a fine familiar spell, but without spending the gold to cast it. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and like it lasts for like 10 minutes and you can end it any time without an action. So could you imagine being in a political intrigue? You send, even as a fighter, you suddenly become useful in situations that perhaps you couldn't before because you couldn't just stealth up to the door and listen in and then hide. But you can stealth up to the door, listen, and then just disappear. And suddenly your fighter is now involved in stuff that was usually only thought of as the job of like the rogues or the sneaky characters. But now your big lumbering fighter can suddenly provide even more utility outside of combat, which I think is really cool with this as well. Yeah, there is, um, I am all for, I am all for having the martial archetypes have something other than just, just hitting stuff. Yeah. I'm a big fan of that. The one that, yeah, the, yeah, it's, it's just, it's very, it's very, very cool. Um, especially with, I, martial archetypes are near and dear to my heart. I kind of alluded to it. I'm one of the, I'm a forever GM, but when I do get to play, I pretty much play the, ev- the same character every time. And that's packed to the blade warlock, maybe dipping into some fighter. I'm just teleporting around the battlefield, hitting stuff. And this fits right into that kind of wheelhouse for me. So I was digging this a lot. So, but we get into some wizard stuff and we kind of glossed over it. But could one of you all explain to me what is, what's, what is Dunamancy? That's where the Echo Knight's based off of, and that's where also we have the Chronergy and Graviturgy magic. But what is Dunamancy? I'm going to put on my engineering and physicist uh, glasses because that's my background. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> and explain that I think Mercer developed Dunamancy because he, on his free time, the man is a machine. I don't understand it. He likes to read um, astrophysics. <laughs> okay. So, we all have our hobbies. Yeah, no, clearly, yeah. <laughs> And he decided to create the School of Magic that, that's basically manipulated time and space. Because that's a, the biggest, the central point of astrophysics up to a point is, is manipulation and understanding the study of, of time, space, and how that varies with uh, different velocities and different states of, of rest and whatnot. Well, not going to get too nerdy here. <laughs> so Dunamancy is basically exactly that, but in a magic setting. 
there's this uh this this god it's a lesser idol i guess the 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 luxon and they yep. learn dunamancy from it because it has the ability to alter space and time and matter and that's exactly where the chronergy and the graviturgy come in chronergy is a class of wizards that focus on manipulating time and bending time while the graviturgy is the other point is the matter and the the solid matter which is which is obviously tied to gravity hence the graviturgy part of it yeah there's um it's it's interesting what they do here and there's a whole list of spells that they go into but Virginia, when you look at these new, the new wizard um, schools and then the new spells, were there anything, was there anything here that really stood out to you? Uh, I think, I mean, the whole concept of of Dunamancy as a kind of new form of magic was really uh, appealing to me. And obviously I heard about it all as it was appearing on the show, because while I'm not caught up, I'm not fussed about spoilers. And I'm I'm in some of the fan groups, so I see a lot of it. And I remember, I think Mercer was talking about it on one of the many interviews that he did surrounding the book, that he was kind of um, filling this gap that he saw in um, the types of magic that were available. Because if you can manipulate life and death, which, you know, is a pretty big thing to be able to manipulate in any world. Why shouldn't you be able to manipulate time and space? These other things that fundamentally ground you in in a world. Life and death in terms of are you living, are you dead? And then the actual, the physical space and time around you that you're interacting with. So the the whole thing was really interesting for me. And I I like playing spellcasters. Okay. I'm either some kind of arcane trickster tiefling or I like playing sorcerer, uh, sorcerers as well. So having okay. this new kind of magic to play with is really cool. And looking at some of the, um, the, the subclass stuff that you get here and some of the spells that come up later on, the ability to manipulate time and matter in this way you've kind of had it before with other things you had like time stop which was a spell in the player's handbook and you know meldstone and stuff like that but this takes it to a whole different level where you can suddenly start to do battlefield management um where you're actually starting to not just mess with a thing in the environment but the whole environment you're starting to be able to mess with the enemy and what they're able to do to you because you have this advantage of manipulating time and your perception or their perception of it um and i think uh mercer's talked a lot about battlefield management with some of his um bardic colleges that he did um which was like imagining the bard as this conductor conducting the battle and i think i see some of that in here as well the idea of um that your environment is just as important as your ability to fight and i think it's what makes for interesting we've all we've all played long D combats where they take forever. You're only three rounds in and you're just hitting. Yes. Once you hit something enough times, especially as a spellcaster, because you're just like, I cast fireball and I keep doing that because it's the most powerful spell I have. And that's great, but it gets really boring when you're in like a dungeon and that's all you're doing. So suddenly being able to do more than just hit things with spells and actually manipulate an environment to give an advantage becomes a lot more important and I think it shakes up the variety of combats that you have because no two environments are the same. Absolutely. I, there are some really cool spells here that, like you said, they're not just, you're, they're not just like you're now rolling roll four D sixes of this sort of damage. There's some really cool stuff. Like one of my favorites is temporal shunt, 
which is basically just um, a new version of Counterspell. But it's really cool because you have the ability, when you see somebody casting a spell, this is a reaction. You just get to push them forward in time or push them back in time. So their spell misses. It's just like a little bit, it's just like, there's some really cool, this really cool stuff here. There is also the, I, I think it's hilarious that I guarantee that one of my players in one of my games, I already know, I already know they have been bugging me for an immovable rod forever. Like they, I don't know, I don't understand why players want them so much. They, but there is now, you now have a spell, immovable object, which is just kind of like the same thing, but it's a second level spell and I guarantee they're going to take it. So. And you know the pranks that are going to be had with that. I pick up oh, the coin, I, do you? <laughs> I know it's so, it's so rough. But one of the other things um, that I'm really excited about these spells as a game master is that a lot of them, instead of being deck saves, they're con saves. So all of my, my rogues and all my, my players with these really high deck scores that I can never hit. <laughs> Guess what? You're going to be taking some damage from now on. So big, I'm excited about that. It's a big screw you to evasion. Monks and rogues, get out of the way. <laughs> I feel like yeah, I'm on both it... sides of this because I love, like, rogue is my character class. So I love playing high decks rogues with spellcasting abilities. <laughs> but I too, as the GM, as a nearly forever GM, also have the thing where you're like, even fighters at high levels have got ridiculous decks. You're like, I can't. I can't do anything fun to you. No, just let me, I know. Just let me do it. What do you mean your dex is like 21? What are you talking about? So, and <laughs> that's right. Everyone, everyone who plays rogues will dump con because I do it all the time. And the one time you yep. get a con save come up and you watch people's faces, they're like, Oh no. Excuse oh, me. Did you mean right. dex? Well, <laughs> <laughs> well, guess what? You can't dodge gravity or yeah. time. So <laughs> I think, so that's what I, there's some really cool stuff here that I think a lot of people are going to get uh, a whole lot out of so this leads us into the next major chunk of this and we're just going to kind of this is the adventures and we don't want to spoil a whole lot of stuff here but just kind of a a you've we've got there's four adventures here just kind of give everyone an overview there are four very different adventures and they're very low level and what they are is these adventures are meant to kick off your campaign within wild now so if you want to do menagerie coast or if you want to do a different section you want to do the grain wildlands um there's these four different adventures where you set your campaign. This is the adventure you want to use. And so often when you read adventures that are put in campaign guides, they are almost seen as an afterthought. These adventures are not that. As a game master alone, I would say pick this book up just for these adventures. They're that good. We have the four adventures we get is we get a, we get a beach. We get a beach adventure. This is the, this is the anime beach episode gone wrong. All right. And then we get a, another adventure where you're dealing with a gnome scientist who has created almost like a Warhammer mech suit. And I'm like, okay, I dig it. All right. Uh, then we get a, uh, adventure set in um up in the north and this is this weird depressing adventure where it's snow and cold and the plague is hit and i'm like it, i'm telling you like I, I keep saying it everybody knows i'm i'm usually pretty enthusiastic but these are really good um and then the let's see the final adventure we've got our beach our stop the evil scientist oh and then the last one is the, oh how could i forget 
the turtle adventure where you're trying to save a goblin warlock who protects a village that is on a giant tortoise oh I, come i come love on. the horizon back tortoises i know we're gonna get to like the bestiaire in a bit but i came across yes. those and was like i love them i want to make a whole campaign based around these giant tortoises with people's I know, right? yeah <laughs> It's very, it's very cool. Um, it, yeah, there's a whole adventure about that. And I think there's one other thing I want to say about that adventure, which is really cool, is that it, that particular adventure includes an old school hex crawl that is with all of these interesting locations on the map that your players can explore. And it's all about exploring this small swamp. And so it, not Dungeons and Dragons, but it, it reminds me of if you're familiar with Free League's um, Forbidden Lands, it really does remind me of Forbidden Lands here. And it's, it's really cool. So uh, these adventures are absolutely top notch. So love them. So the the next section though is the magic items which is a personal favorite of mine i love magic items so much so i want to ask you all i'm sure you all love magic items just like me is there anything there's some cool ones in here what's your favorite i i have three because i can't choose one. Oh boy all right here we go <laughs> um I looked at it and I think on like the f- one of the first pages, I have the arcane cannon. And for ages, <laughs> I have been waiting to see like, cause we've had ships and stuff. And I'm like, surely they have yep. magical weapons, but you rarely ever see it mentioned. And I looked through it. I was like, yep, this is it. I want to give my characters. I'm not a big, um, like piratey kind of campaign person, but I want to give them a ship just to see one of these things fire. Um, yes. But I thought it was kind of cool that we're finally getting to see kind of magic weapons of that type, as mm-hmm. opposed to just a shiny sword that does stuff. Um, I also really like the Lux and Beacons and what they do and the whole thing surrounding those and that, you know, if you die nearby one of them and you've had this ritual process happen to you, your soul gets transferred to some baby within a hundred mile radius and it's this weird incarnation stuff that can send you mad and allows you as you get older to kind of remember these past lives and people kind of doing it to the point where they're doing it to collect a wealth of knowledge i think there's a lot of fun campaign stuff you can put with that but also uh the the vox seeker because it's a little bit ridiculous but i love it it's like a little wind up like crab like thing that just attacks the nearest thing that makes sound like people talking and I can just imagine the chaos you could cause. Like if you gave that to me as a rogue player, you best bet that at that big fancy banquet, I'm winding that thing up and sending it after whoever's screaming at the banquet table to see what happens or cause a distraction. I just, I love that. It's just so ridiculous, but I can see it being so useful. So there, yeah, there's some very cool stuff. Um, Nunu, what what about you? What's some standouts here this for is you? Going to be a, sound a, like a bit weird pick, but it's the reincarnation dust because I love okay. I love the spell reincarnation, and it's not used often enough because people no no I prefer raise dead or something right, or just go to the local town and have a priest cast raise dead because it's better. But if you have the dust and the fighter just goes, well, we can do it here and continue the adventure maybe maybe we get to see more reincarnation so i'm really excited for this <laughs> yeah that's cool because you really don't you're, you're right you don't see many reincarnations and everybody loves a good random role to figure out what's going to happen and that's one of the best things about reincarnation is that it's for the most part you can obviously make it where it's not random yeah. but i'm pretty sure in the dungeon master's guide or even it's supposed to in the it's supposed to be just random and 
yes, I love my story games, but there's just an element of fun from some randomness thrown in there. So that is a very good pick. Um, yeah, there's just absolutely some fantastic ones. We haven't even touched on the, we haven't even touched on the fact that we have the vestiges of divergence as well as the, the evil versions, the arms of the betrayers. And I will say this, I have actually already taken one of the arms of the betrayers and put it in our ghost of Saltmarsh stream. And one of my characters now they were fighting some, some spider people and I wanted, it was time to give them a magic item. So I was like, okay, I'm going to throw in the silken spite. All right, here we go. So I've already used some of these. They're very, they're very cool. Um, these these are items that are basically these epic level artifacts, which this actually introduces a completely new mechanic into 5th edition, where you have items that grow and gain new abilities as the characters use them and progress their own story. It gives them this very, and like I already said, epic, but that's what it is in the, the actual true sense of it. It is an epic talk, talking about something starting from very little and then growing into becoming a legend. And so it's this really cool, this really cool new thing that they've included here. I'm not sure if you all had any other thoughts about these magic items Absolutely. here. Absolutely. I think, I think this happened as well in the other book by Green Ronin. They yeah. also have like vestiges of divergence and some arms of the betrayers as well, I think. There's just an ex- different ones here, which is pretty exciting. But the mechanic themselves, I think it's super interesting because it always happens in a campaign. You get this cool sword plus one when you're level five and you love it and it's your weapon forever. And then yeah. you level up a little bit. Oh, there's a generic long sword and it's plus two. All right, fine. Maybe I'll trade. Okay. (laughs) But with this, you can start giving these out level five or something while they're dormant and slowly work on them and use them through the campaign and becomes almost as another player because it's like it's leveling up with you almost as if it was a pet kind of. I think it's a super interesting thing. You, you start to get something kind of iconic, which I think you had with like campaign one, where you had Vax with his daggers and you had, um, you know, Keyleth with her staff, you had Grog with Titanstone Knuckles. So they play in a lot to, I think, what Critical Role does a lot, which is creating these really powerful story arcs for characters and rewarding finishing that arc and coming through difficulty very, very well. Um, I think there's like a list, so there's a random roll table um, for ways that you might um, awaken these, uh, the vestiges of divergence, you know, by coming under a period of serious stress, being beaten to within an inch of your life, but finding the resolve to push forward and things like that. And um, it's always really fun, especially if you don't hint to a player, because I've used vestiges of divergence. I actually used a lot of the ones from campaign one in a Tal'Dorei campaign that I ran because all of my players were critters and they all wanted okay, to, yeah. they all wanted to play with these vestiges they'd seen on the show. And um, the excitement when you give somebody that, like when I was giving those critical role fans who were my players, you know, vestiges that they recognized but obviously their characters didn't know what they were yet was sheer joy on their faces because they knew what was coming. And then um, I've also given some of the ones that weren't mentioned on the show, but were in the first book to players who didn't know what critical role was. And they were like, Oh, this is a cool magic item. And then they do something and I'm like, this thing happens and watching a player be like, wait, it gets better. Yeah, like pick the jaw off the floor. Yeah, and like Nuno said, it's kind of sad when you get that cool magic item the first time around and then you have to abandon it three levels later because there is something better and 
story or not, you also still want to optimize your character to live, especially if it's a magic weapon as opposed to some other buff. So having something that grows with a character, I think they get really attached to it. And at least for the the players that I've used vestiges with, they just get more and more excited. And then they start going off on like, oh, does it get better from here? What do, especially if they don't know the show, like they try and start doing everything they can to see if they can make it do something else. (laughs) And that's a whole new story in itself in figuring out why did this do this? Is this an important thing? Where did it come from? That you can then start, playing with as well so the vestiges themselves are more than just magic items they are entire story arcs and plot points of their own that you can insert into a game just by gifting one to a player yes absolutely they're so cool i definitely just the magic items are absolutely top notch here the the then last section of the book is the book that all of us dungeon masters were waiting for. It is the it is the bestiary. It is the section where we get to take something and throw it into our campaign, and not just to fight players, but to also interact with them and to make this world feel living. And so there's some cool monsters here. Um, there's a lot of stuff. We get a we get a blood hunter NPC. We get some giant frost worms. We get a frost giant zombie. But new um, new. What's your favorite? What's your standout here in the best area? I have two, but I'm going to leave the turtle to Virginia, I think. Because it was one okay. of my one of my two. <laughs> the other one... I'm glad we both had that. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> um, the other one's actually the Sea Fury. It's a super interesting okay. concept. Because I love hags in my games. But they, they kind of feel a little yes. bit bland, usually. Because there's like five, there's four types. And they're CR, four, five, whatever. After a few levels, it's just... It's not a threat while it should be. While this Sea Fury concept of a coven that fills fills in its purpose and then the stronger one starts assimilating the other hags and becomes this massive, super powerful sea witch. It's amazing. You should use it always. Okay, that's that's a that's a I, that's a cool one. I love the Sea Fury as well. It is actually I keep on saying this, but it's so true. There's so much here that I'm gonna be taking for my there's so much stuff to use on the ocean and I love it. So, um, Virginia, what's your what's your favorite? Uh, well, we've already mentioned the the horizon okay. back tortoises, which were really cool. Um, and I think I said earlier, basically, they're these giant tortoises that live in a swamp, um, like this swampy kind of area that have like a whole villages and like people's houses on their backs. And I really love the note that not only do they have this kind of symbiotic relationship with the the people that live on them, but they're also used as siege weapons. And just the yes. idea of that in my mind, I'm like, I need, I need to have a siege now with these tortoises, and they're obviously going to win because I think they're adorable. Um, but I think my my all time favorite are the core um, spore creatures. These kind of strange, almost Lovecraftian horror creatures. Yeah, the art is very. It's very weird for them. Yeah, I love the idea that they're these uh, they're these remnants that are left over from the the betrayer gods and these other entities um, over time that are you know are powerful in their own right and are just kind of weird and twisted and that you it mentions like um, I can't remember what they call them in the book but like these other godlike beings that are often the far realms and might exist in again in that very cosmic horror circle and i love that they've put that in because i feel like cosmic horror works so well in high fantasy because once you start digging deeper like what makes this where did this come yes. from yes and you you reach an end point and that logical end point is kind of cosmic horror 
So having these creatures here, which I think have been missing from a lot of, um, you know, we know that beholders come from these far out realms that aren't, don't really exist, but kind of do. So having more to support that and these kind of creatures that seem to appear out of nowhere, these cosmic horror stories is really cool. Because we haven't seen that much in the Monster Manual or in Volos or anything like that. We haven't had these creatures that are on those same lines. So it'd be fun to see what, what people can do with those in their games. Yeah, there's some very cool stuff here. A lot of very interesting things. Um, the Cosmic Horror stuff is absolutely great. Um, my favorite one is the Gloomstalker, which is a shadowy worven that is got smoke and tendrils. And then it even mentions that they're potentially mounts and I'm continuing to build my super edgy character as we go through this book, folks. And yeah, you better believe they have a Gloomstalker mount, all right? Because they're that cool, all right? Yeah, so actually Gloomstalkers <laughs> play a very big part in the last section of Campaign 1 of Critical Role. Oh, yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. In, the, in the Vecna oh, arc, exactly. they, were, they were everywhere. They were terrifying. Well. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, that brings us to the end of it. So what we have to do now is we've got to give this the, our final ratings, all right? So I sent you all these rating scale, this goofy rating scale that I put together. All right. It goes from C minus to A plus. Uh, I don't think anybody's ever given anything a C minus. Um, so if you all want to be the first, you can, because we typically pick stuff that we really like. All right. So the, cause we're so, we're, we're so objective here, but um, anyway, the, um, so the first thing that I want to ask you all for your final rating. All right. What we're going to do is we're going to go. We're going to start with Virginia first, all right? All right, and then I'll go, and then and then Nunu, you will go. And then Nunu, for the next category, you will go first, okay? So this is where we're balancing this, okay? So, all right, design and layout. Virginia, this is, what did you think about the art, the overall layout of this book? What, is this a C minus? Is this an A plus? What do you think? Uh, I think I would give this, like, an A minus. Like, okay. I think the the layout is great, like, Things are presented really well, and I think the art is really evocative. Yes, so true. For me, I'm going to go ahead and give it a. I'm going to give it a, a minus as well. Um, there is such great art here. The only reason that it doesn't get higher is that in the races section, every single one of the races art is recycled. So I understand wizards. You know they got to tighten their tighten the belts every once in a while, but come on. Please give me another picture of an Aarakocra next time. Okay, that's all I gotta say there. All right, so Nunu, what did you think about the the design layout? Art it's gonna here? be extremely boring, but it's gotta be a minus as well. I, I don't think it's yes. just like super. I love this. I need this. No, it's just really good. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's yeah. perfect. Okay, that is a minus all across the board. All right, so the next category, Nunu, you're gonna start us off the fluff. All right, this is the. What did you think about how did they take the world of critical role translated into a book and what did you think about the story elements and everything this is straight up an a not not anyway it's just a okay. i mean as i mentioned before the fact that the person that doesn't know anything about this and comes here and falls in love with the setting and a person that knows all about this comes here and falls in love with the setting again i think that's all you need to know about the fluff of the book <laughs> 
It's so good. I, I, I'm going to go ahead and, all right. So I'm going to give it a B plus. All right. So the reason I'm giving it a B plus is specifically for if you all were to see my scale of what B plus says, it says I'm stealing this for my game and I'm using it because that's actually what I'm actually doing for. I'm stealing a lot of this stuff. There's a lot of this stuff in this book that I actually don't care about. And most of it has to deal with the middle part of Wild Mount and the Dwendalian Empire. I could I could basically not deal with it just because it, it, to me, it feels very standard fantasy esque. But the stuff that is not standard fantasy esque is so good here. And I'm taking it all and I'm putting it in my game. So it's getting a B plus for me. I'm stealing it. All right, Virginia. Uh, I think I have to uh, agree with Nuno with an A because uh, I am a okay. critical role fan. So I do steal a lot of stuff from, I will steal a lot of stuff from this book for other games. But because my like my primary setting is always Exandria, it's always in this world somewhere, even if I'm piecemealing stuff together. Um, and I just think they've done, a, as somebody who's not caught up with season two, a fantastic job of making me feel really guilty that I'm not caught up on it because I need to go watch it now so I can run stuff in here. Like it's, yes. it's evoking that need to just deep dive even more than I have done into the book. Fantastic. Yeah, it's very good. Okay, so you're going to kick us off for the next section is The Crunch. All right, this is, what did you feel about the new subclasses, the new spells, the bestiary, the magic items? All right, what is The Crunch rating here? I'm going to give this an A plus because okay. I am a GM that is a sucker for magic items and weird mm-hmm. new creatures that my players don't know about and can't metagame with. Um, I I love running super high fantasy, so I give out magic items like they're going out of fashion. <laughs> um, okay. And I pay for that later with having to like fudge encounters. Um, but I think that new vestiges, which I wasn't really expecting to see because I covered it in the first mm-hmm. book so well, uh, was definitely a surprise. But that new magic um, is like the biggest thing because it completely changes some of the foundation that's already been set by it's not just new spells it's a whole new type of magic that opens up so many gateways in terms of plots like battles what happens and as a gm i find that really interesting to see how my players will react to it happening to them and react to them using it in game and it's just it's completely new and i think that's what i really like about it yeah the I'm going to go ahead and I don't want to be as positive. I'm going to drag us down, drag us all the way down to an A minus. All right. So the, um, I, I like it a whole lot. Um, I think that I like the idea that there's all these, this new schools of magic, like you talked about that a lot of stuff is now con saves. I really like the magic items here and the, the monsters are super, super cool as well i i just the one thing that i wish that there was was i wish there was a little bit more so um not just obviously they really wanted to dive into the dunamancy stuff but as somebody who is doesn't traditionally play or care too much about the magical side of things i wish i would have seen a little bit some other some other classes as far as like maybe maybe some paladin or some rogue or something else but that doesn't say that necessarily what is there is bad it's great i gave it an a minus i just wanted something maybe a little bit different there so but it's all i love magic items these are cool monsters so from a dungeon master standpoint this book is obviously you gotta get it for that reason alone all right so new new so there are things here that i love a lot especially the dunamancy part of it and things Mm -hmm. that 
maybe I'm just gonna use, but I'm not sure because my style of DMing is a lot like improving and coming with things on the spot. And so the monsters and the items are not that important to me. So I think I'm torn between an A minus or a B. So I'm gonna go with B plus right in the middle. Okay. Okay. That's, that's, I I think that's a good rating and that's still, it's good. I would be. All right, so you all would agree with me. We like this book. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, yes. I, if you all didn't gather, uh, which is we really, I really enjoyed this book. It was a book that I was, I went into. Um, I wasn't sure. I was very apprehensive about it because, like I said earlier, it's another high fantasy, and I wasn't sure if I was going to like it or not. But in the the group text that I have with my players. I've sent them more stuff from this book than any other book. So I was reading through all these and I'm like, yeah, I guess I like this book. So there's a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's it's a good book. And I'll say this as somebody who's not a Critical Role fan um, or somebody who just hasn't watched it a whole lot is this is a, I would say buy this. I mean, there's new stuff here. This is a new original setting for Dungeons and Dragons. It's very good. Any closing thoughts? I, I wholeheartedly agree. Do not do not be okay. fooled. This is not a critical role fan book. It's, it's not absolutely not. Um, the biggest thing about it, I think, is the amount of new things that you're gonna get. Because I feel like the other books are are core in the core are D and D things we know already, and then a little bit of extra things. But here, everything is new. So even if you don't care about Crooker Roll, you know nothing about it. It's a new setting. As you said, Tom, go and buy it. If you have the cash for it, it's a very good investment. Recommend. Yes, absolutely. Virginia, closing thoughts. I, I think for me, like as a Critical Role fan, I had really high expectations of what this book would be. Um, obviously, having read the first one, I really loved that. I was hoping there was a lot that they would copy and bring over and do the same and improve upon, which I think they have. So I think if you've, if you've enjoyed the first book, you're going to love this one even more. Um, but I okay. think as well, from, from the perspective of somebody who helps develop and design games, just the way this book has been put together is so useful for dungeon masters. Like I I can echo what you've both said about having really amazing content to use, whether you're a critical role fan or not, it's, it's, it's its own setting and its own rights. But I think the way that they have put that together has made it invaluable for a game master because it's so easy to take the bits you want and to find all the new stuff that's there. And I think that's what really makes us a great, book for me it's not just the content but how they've put it together absolutely and i could i'd be remiss if i didn't say this book is an absolute must buy because they put an index in it all right and a glossary so they didn't make that mistake again all right so with that said definitely go check out the explorer's guide to wild mount and, and that's where we're going to end it today but before we go up uh, let's go ahead and find out where we can where our listeners can hear more about you all so virginia if where can people find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on the internet at Tabletop Horde. Uh, you can find me under that name on Twitter, uh, Instagram, and Twitch. So Twitter is where I post most of my stuff. Uh, Instagram, if you just want to see weird photography stuff that I'm doing and random posts. And obviously, if you want to watch me playing um, some video games and just kind of chilling, um, you can find me over on Twitch. Uh, you can also see me over on the Follow Black Cats Gaming channel on Thursdays, uh, 8 p.m., 
EST. I'm going to get that right this time. Yes, okay. <laughs> uh, 3pm EST uh, in our Song of Ice and Fire campaign. And occasionally uh, you can catch me. I'm not on the upcoming season, but you can also usually find me over on Encounter Roleplay doing something, running something. I just okay. finished Star Trek there. so But that's where I am. <laughs> fantastic that's social media synergy i like it okay so nunu where can people find you or more about what you're doing you can find me at j nunu text that's j n u n o t e x on all social media as well instagram twitter and most recently tiktok (laughs) yes go check them out on tiktok and uh yeah about what i do you can check out my newest wild mount campaign coming out 11th of may on twitch.tv slash chromatic chimera that's Wild Mount Daring and Divine, Wild Mount D&D. It's going to be fun. And also, once in a while, Encounter Roleplay. I'll be doing something there in July, and that's it. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's if you ever want to find anybody in tabletop RPGs that lives over in the UK, you'll find them on Encounter Roleplay. <laughs> all right, so, um, so uh, you all can follow me at BezkarTom on Twitter and... As always, do not forget, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize. But there are expenses related to the show, And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy. Or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time. The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.